0: Well, Providence family, it is so good to see you here as well as uh, uh, in all the various venues here at Providence. We are glad you're here. If you're in the Fellowship Hall or the Amphitheater of Prisms, welcome. Um, or at home as well. as uh, We're uh, glad that you've joined us. I hope you've had a great week. And if you're a guest here at Providence, uh, we are thrilled that you have joined us. We honor, uh, we, 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 we absolutely think it's an honor that you have uh, uh, come. Um, and uh, We love to gather, and as we gather, we love to look at God's Word. And so if you have one with you in your hand, a Bible, if you want to head to the sixth chapter of Ephesians, uh, starting in verse 5, from verse 5 until verse 9 is um, sort of where we're at. This passage speaks to an area of life that tends to dominate uh, our lives. It dominates our time, our waking hours, our thoughts, our emotions, our affections, our stress. It's an area that that can be um, an idol in our life, and it's also something in which we can be idle with it, where we just don't want to do it, and it's work. Every one of us has work to do, whether it's to run the world or whether it's to change diapers. There's there's work that must be done in the world, and you know what's on your plate. It's interesting that most of us in this room, uh, we... Invested a lot of energy thinking about our work. Um, some of us may even have something this week with our work uh, that that uh, that just causes uh, just a measure of stress and anxiety in our life. Even this morning, and so even before we jump in, what I want to do is to pray for our work. I want to pray for your job and for mine. So if you would, let's bow, let's pray together. Father in heaven, we do thank you that this is the day that you have made, and we will rejoice and be glad in it. We're thankful, God, for your work on our behalf. We're grateful that you created us and you sustain us. And even when we walked away, we're thankful, Christ, that you worked, that you accomplished what we couldn't accomplish. You lived the righteous life and then you gave your life for us. You rose from the dead. And because of that work, because you said it's finished on the cross, we can say it's finished in every single morning of our life, even before we go about doing our work. And so I pray. I pray for those in this room and in all the rooms. Lord, this morning, I pray for those that feel like they're not appreciated in their work. They're not utilized. Their skills aren't utilized. Feel like they're underpaid or overworked, who feel like they're not respected at work. God, all the different things that sort of stack up in our lives that cause work to be a stressor instead of a blessing. God, we lift to you. We thank you that you've worked for us and we thank you, Jesus, that you came in order to make a strike on everything that would, that would soil and tamper our work and the joy in it. And so I pray, God, that you would help us to see how the gospel untangles our work from this tangled up world. I pray, God, that you would help us to believe what it says. And even work through what we, what we know and what we'll see is a very perplexing reality in the world and throughout the history of the world. So God, would you speak through weakness? Give us belief in our heart towards what you say and help us to see, help us to see that you are for us, that it is unquestionable that you have our best at heart. And so would you help us to trust you with our lives? We pray in Christ's name, amen. Amen. Well, work uh, clearly does not have the best reputation uh, on the block and in our hearts. It's sort of interesting to see how we talk about work. Um, Most of the people in our culture, we sort of view work as mercenary. It's almost that necessary burden that we have to do in order to fund our lifestyle. And so we see stickers that say, I owe, I owe, so off to work I go. They sort of resonate with our own heart. In fact, there's been lots of people that have written about how work is really just part of this unending cycle of just staying alive and just buying more things and needing more things. And so we have to go to work in order to fund this this cycle. I want to show you one of my favorite quotes on this. This is what she says. She says, normal is getting dressed in clothes you buy for work and driving through traffic in a car that you're still paying for. In order to get to a job that you need to pay for the clothes and the car and the house that you leave vacant all day so you can afford to live in it, right? This is how a lot of us feel is that we go to work in order to have money to buy a house. We can't buy all the house, so we have to keep going to work in order to keep the house. And this is pretty much how we view work. It's this burden in many of our lives that uh, that that is truly um, it's a sad thing. But what's maybe even more sad is that when you look inside the church, where 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 folks have an, a little bit maybe more understanding about what's taking place and why work is broken as it is, is oftentimes within the church, it, uh, work really doesn't have a great reputation either because we kind of attribute it to sin or to. The curse of sin, that when we sinned against God and God took the earth and He says that He made the ground hard and He said, I want you to work it and the work will become harder because I made the ground hard. He cursed the world with thorns and thistles. And so we kind of look at it and we think, man, this is all because of sin. And so. And so outside the church, it's mercenary. Inside the church, it's a curse of sin. And, and yet there's something of extreme value in each of our life that God wants us to see as it relates to the work that we do day in and day out. And so to understand that, we need to go backwards. You have to go backwards way before you go forwards. And if you go all the way to the bidding, you don't get to a garden. You get to God. God was here before the garden. In fact, the very first words in the Bible says, in the beginning, God, he's the beginning. And notice the fifth word. He says he created. And so God worked. God is a worker. And you notice that he didn't have a debt somewhere. And so he created the earth to sell it so that he could pay off his debt. So his work wasn't mercenary. It wasn't an unnecessary burden, an obstacle to fund a lifestyle. Nor was there any sin or curse at the time. No, he chose to work. And God is righteous and he's just and is holy. And so what he does is righteous and just and holy. It's the right thing. And so we find that God is a worker. On the sixth day of his work, it says that he created humanity, man and woman. He created us. And the very first thing he tells us to do is to go and work. He says, I want you to take the raw materials of what I created, and with it, I want you to beautify what you see. And so what does it say? It says that God put him, that would be Adam, in the Garden of Eden, to work it and keep it. And every single one of us have a natural instinct. It's ingrained within us that after we work, we do something. And that's something as we normally look at it. We take pleasure in it. When there's a hard task, when there's a significant job and we've finished that job, we, we all tend to kind of want to step back. That's why if you mow the yard, it's only natural after you've mowed the yard and worked all day in the yard and you can see the fruit of your labor, you look at it and you think, you know, this looks better. This looks good. I'm going to show you a project that our family's been working on. Okay, This is a flagstone patio. And we started this dream right back in November, I believe. So it's been a while. And we've been working... and. To be totally honest, this is the first flagstone patty we've ever done, and it'll be our last also, because I had no idea, none of us had any idea how hard it was to move that much material. We've moved 21 tons of material to our backyard in order to do this. And yesterday, yesterday we finished um, um, leveling the very last stone. And instinctively, it was interesting to see what took place in everybody's life without being invited to do so. Everybody took about three steps back, and everyone just kind of looked. There's a little smile. We said, man, it, it looks good. There was, there's a sense of just, just, just uh, value. There's a sense that it, it's gratifying when we put our hands to something. You say, well, why do we do that? Let me tell you why we do that. Because God does that. In chapter 1, verse 31 of the Bible, it says that God saw everything he made and it was very good. What does that mean? It means that God finished the earth. He finished, he put his thumbs in his pockets and he stepped back and he said, man, that's very good. We're created in the image of a creating, producing kind of God. And so that's why we work. Now, there's no doubt that sin's curse. When we rebelled against God, he did curse the earth. He made the work so much harder. And the thorns and thistles, it makes it very difficult. But you have to understand work in and of itself is a gift, not only in this world, but the next. And what Jesus did, he came down and he didn't just carpet bomb everything once sin tangled everything. No, he made a strategic strike in order to take out sin that tangles our work. Now, what Paul wants to do here in Ephesians near the end of it, is he's identifying different areas where we spend so much time and where we think about it a lot, where we find so much of our stress. And what he's doing is he's saying sin has tangled all these areas up. But Jesus Christ came, and I want to show you what the gospel can do to literally untangle your work. Maybe not perfectly here on this side of the earth, but enough so that you can still find gratification, satisfaction within your soul of putting forth an effort that's worthy of his glory, and so this is what he says, starting in verse five. He says, "Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ. Not by way of eye service, as people who please, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord." Whether he is a bond servant or is free, masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. Well, even before we work through the three really practical, hopefully, and inspiring truths that we find in this text, I think it's important for us to address the reality that's jarring to us, and that is that he uses the words masters and bondservants, and the word bondservant in some of your translations is the word slave. Of course, this is jarring to us because of the racial tensions in our own country that have all been precipitated from American slavery. We look at this, and there's been a lot of people through time that have taken this exact text that we just read that we're going to look at today. And they've sought to justify two different extremes. And it's sort of like this coin in my hand. It's one coin, one text. And this text has been used in two different ways that really are tragic. One of the ways it's used is by Christians, I believe, who misapply, misunderstand exactly what it's saying here. And in time and space, even in our own culture, you can go back and you can read sermons in Christian churches that use this text to justify the institution of American slavery. On the flip side, there's another side of the coin, and that is that there have been critics, not only then, but even now. And of course our country is not the only country that has had slavery or that has it now. It's it's an amazing thing. It's, and so there's been a lot of people who look at this text, they don't believe in Jesus Christ but they do believe that with an enlightened mind, they now know it's very, very clear that slavery is immoral. And so, what they do is they look at this text and they condemn all of Christianity and Christ outright. And the reason they do so is because they believe that this justifies and condones slavery. And they think, well, clearly we know better. And so if that's the case, then this book is outdated. This is something of the past. This is, this is clearly not true. It's clearly not moral. It's not the moral guide to life. Now, one of the things you have to understand when you study the Bible is the context of the Bible. It's not an encyclopedia. It's a story. And there's very few chapters in the entire Bible are written out like it's supposed to be lived the first two and the last two. And the rest of the Bible, everything's broken. And so there's all kinds of things that you read of within the scriptures that if you just say, well, I'm supposed to emulate everything that I see here. You're going to live a life that is not honoring to God. You see, there is a lot of immorality. There is a lot of slavery. There's a lot of injustice. There's all kinds of things. And the reason is because what's happening is that God is looking down upon a world where they say there is no king. There's no God. So everyone does what is right in their own eyes. And because our heart is sinful, we mistreat one another. And so God intervenes in this broken world and he's trying And he's successful through Jesus Christ in order to rescue and redeem it so that when he comes back again and he fully establishes a new kingdom, his kingdom, he says he's going to make all things new. He's going to bring it back to where it once was. And so you and I, we look at this and we think, gosh, is he condoning slavery? I do not believe so. God created all people in his image to be free. Slavery is an insult to that. It's a wrong thing. And yet God recognizes that within this broken world, it's there. And so he speaks to it. And so one of the things we have to understand also about the Bible is that that there's a few different kinds of bond servanthood that we find within the Scriptures. The first one, ironically, was actually prescribed by God himself. It was in the midst of the people of God, Israel, in the Old Testament, And he actually gave it as a provision of mercy. And this is how it worked, that if you got in such debt over your head, that you lost your house, you lost food, you have no income whatsoever, you're in such debt that literally life is, there's no bankrupt laws. There was no no Medicare, Medicaid, Social Security. There's no disability. It was, you take care. And if you can't, what do you do? And so God gave a provision of mercy that says that if you're in debt, that's so deep, that you're so under your head, you can't even take care of your family. You can voluntarily become a bond servant to your lender. And the lender will give you shelter and food and time to pay off the debt. And yet the time, there was a maximum length. And what was also so interesting is God literally baked redemption into the culture. And that once every 50 years, there was this year. There was this year of jubilee where literally all debts throughout the entire country were totally zeroed out. Everybody was free. And so God looked and he knew things were broken. And, and so he says, until my son makes it all right and all new, this will be a provision of mercy for you. And there's a lot of other types of slavery. And the one that's most prevalent when Paul was writing to came as a result of conquest. You see, Rome was a country that liked to grow. Their empire liked to grow. And so what would happen is they would grow through conquering other nations. Those nations would then come under the Roman Empire. Ephesus was one of those people. And so when Paul was writing Ephesus, a lot of people, a lot of the citizens of Ephesus, they were bondservants. This is where they were at at that time. And so what you have to understand is this. Paul's calling from God was not to run around the world condemning and condoning human institutions. He's literally in a prison unjustly for his faith in Jesus Christ. And yet we never hear him condemning or condoning Rome's judicial system. That wasn't his calling. What was his calling? His calling was to show Christians how the gospel can inform and liberate us in the midst of these broken systems. And it was to share the gospel with people who've never heard of Jesus Christ. And so this is what he writes. Now, in our context, most of us today, in fact, I would assume that all of us today, this, context, this text really applies when it comes to a job. When we are going, we are working, and there's employers and employees. And so there's, in terms of all of the different organizations, there are people that are higher and lower, who have differing scales of roles and responsibilities, And so in that context, how do we apply this to our life? I'm going to show you three things. The first is this, is that God calls us to resist the temptation to resent our position. Some of you feel underutilized at work, underpaid, underappreciated. And when we feel that way, isn't it only natural that we want to stick it to the man? It it really doesn't matter if you're the CEO or if you're the intern. We can all find a man that we want to stick it to. When we feel underappreciated. Not only do we, do we want to sort of disrespect whoever that man is or that woman is, that person over us or around us. I think what also can take place in our lives is that we tend to work our best only when we're being watched closely. And then maybe another effect is that we get tempted when we resent our position to not put forth our best effort. So what does he say? He says, for those of you who are employees, for those of you who are servants, what does he say? He says, the first thing is obey and treat. Treat the person who's over you with fear and trembling. That's speaking of respect. To respect them with your words, to respect them with your behavior. Then he says, and don't just work hard when people are watching to please people, I service. He says, no, not just to save your tail or your back. He says, no, work hard hard as unto the Lord. Work with sincerity of your heart. And then he says, and don't just put forth an effort that's just enough. He says, render good service with a good will, to put forth your best effort. Now, clearly we know, and we've seen this in the last several weeks, is that obedience to man is always limited by our obedience to God. And so we see this clearly in the Old Testament. There's a man named Joseph. He's got a bunch of brothers and they get really jealous of him. And so you know what they do? They sell him into slavery. It's true. It's what it says. His own brothers sold him into slavery. And so he ends up in the house of a man named Potiphar, who's an official. And so um, it's amazing what what we actually find there is he has this attitude that most of us, we we would never even contemplate. And that is he sold out of freedom into slavery. He's done nothing wrong. And he gets there and he says, you know what? I don't want to be a slave. But if I have to be one, I'm going to be the best one here. And I'm going to do it unto the Lord as an act of worship. As a person, I'm forbidden to make decisions. But under God, I'm going to make a decision to do this work to honor him. And you know what God does? He blesses the work of his hands. Everything he touches turns to gold. Potiphar takes notice, and so Potiphar goes. You know what? I'm going to elevate you. I'm going to raise you. I'm going to raise you to where everything is your. I want you to manage everything I have. Well, now that he's elevated, he's a little cleaner. And Potiphar's wife, who spends a lot of time alone, right? She notices Joseph and says, "You know, I want to sleep with you." And now he has he has an obedience. Am I going to obey the wife of my boss? My in this case, owner? Or am I going to obey God? There's a lot of people in this situation in the workplace today. If you do this, if you sleep with me, then you'll advance in this company faster. And they look and they think, okay, am I going to obey man or am I going to obey God? My boss is asking me to lie. Should I lie or should I obey God? Every one of us are are dealt these situations. And so when he says, obey with fear and trembling. The first master we all have is God. We're all held fully accountable to him. So he says no. And he says to her, he goes, how can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Now, this is remarkable to me because he could at this time have said, you know what? God's not really paying off for me right now. I was worshiping God and I was free. And now I'm a slave So why should I even pay attention to God? This is an opportunity for me to do something as pleasurable. So whatever, God. But this is what he says. He goes, how can I sin against God? There's still an affection in his heart. He still knew that God was over all and in all. That he was over him. That he was watching him. That he was evaluating everything that he's doing. And so he says, no, I can't do that. Well, Potiphar's wife falsely goes out and falsely actually says, man, This is what he did. He tried to come in and hurt me. He tried to do this to me. And so he gets thrown into prison. Remarkable. Joseph gets to prison. He goes, you know what? I don't want to be a prisoner. But if I'm going to be a prisoner, I'm going to be the best one here. He continues to refuse to resent his position. And so even in the prison, he becomes so stellar at what he does that he says, everyone's like, why don't you run the prison as a prisoner? It's a remarkable thing. And all this because he didn't resist. He didn't resent. He knew that God was still watching. He knew what was taking place, that God was still the one who was over him. And let's talk about the perfect one. Has anyone ever done this better than Jesus Christ? Think about this. He created all things by speaking it. He came to the earth. He grew up. His dad was a carpenter, so he became a carpenter. Think of his dad coming to him, the creator of the universe. and All right, now this is how to build a table. He could have thought tables together. And his dad's like, now you take a hammer and, and you take these nails. Imagine the creator going, oh, this is how to build. Oh, okay. He could have resented his position while he was here on the earth to say, I I, I have to set aside all of my power and strength. I'm underappreciated. I'm underpaid. I'm undervalued. And yet, can any one of us see a poorly constructed table coming out of Jesus' shop in Nazareth? He put forth his best. So Providence, let's take heart and let's truly deliver the very best work that we can. See, our calling is to show the power of Jesus Christ by blooming in a bed of weeds. You said my work's not perfect. I know. There's weeds everywhere. Everywhere. And yet God, by his spirit, allows us to bloom even in imperfect places. First Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31 says, whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. You see, the God that we want to glorify, he's a creator and he's a redeemer. He's a restorer. So think about the different kinds of work that we put our hands to. If you're here today and your work that you put your hands to, it takes raw materials in order to make something new. Maybe you're a cook or maybe you're an artist. You're doing the work of God. If, on the other hand, your work that you put your hands to, it cleans up a mess. Maybe you're a janitor, a lawyer, or you too are doing the work of God. Maybe your work is the kind of work that restores something that's broken. Maybe you're a mechanic or a doctor. Well, you're doing the work of God. And do you remember what Joseph, what he did when he finally was promoted out of prison into second in command over the entire nation of Egypt? What he did was he created a system of provision to save the entire country. He did something with his life. He left a footprint so that when he was gone, people missed him being there. He just didn't come out and say, okay, now it's all for me. No, he utilized everything that he had in order to serve other people. It's an amazing thing. And the calling that we have providence, even in our own city and around the world, is to leave the kind of footprint in our homes, our jobs, and our city. That we would do so in the name of Christ so that if we left, our homes, our job, and our city would miss us. That they would weep because excellence has moved away. You see, we're to be the salt of the earth, the light of the world, and every noble industry for the glory of God and for the good of others. And you simply can't do that when you resent your position. And so he comes to us and he says, Look, I know where you're at. I know where you're at, but put forth an effort that's worthy, not of him. Or her, but of me. The second thing that he does for us is he calls us to resist the temptation to abuse our position. To abuse our position. This is when he starts talking, verse 9, about masters, about, the, about employers. Now think about this for a second and how this played out. A few minutes ago, I said, turn to Ephesians. And all of you, or most of you, you have a Bible with you. Maybe it was on your phone. If you didn't, there's lots of Bibles in the chairs. And so everyone turned to their own copy. But that's not what happened in this first church. Imagine they all gathered together to worship, and the pastor stands up, and he goes, guess what, guys? Good news. The apostle Paul, even from prison, he wrote us a letter. We're going to read it together today. Can you imagine how amazing that would be? And you can't just take it home and underline your own copy and circle words and pull it out, and memorize it. No, because it was one shared copy of one letter that was given to the church. So it was read together. Now, think about how this plays out. OK, so it starts the first three chapters of Ephesians. It's all like this is what God's done for you because of the gospel and all the all the church and everyone's different place and station. they are arms around each other. This is wonderful. Look what Christ has done for us. This is amazing. You get to chapter four and he goes now. Let's live in a manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And everyone's like, yeah, we can do this. Come on, let's, let's help each other do this. And all of a sudden, he gets to chapter 5, and he starts talking about different people groups. Now, the people groups within the church, they're all listening to this together. And so he starts, and he goes, all right, wives. I can imagine all the husbands like, hey, you listening? This is time. This is for you right here. This is, this, this is your moment in time, right? A few weeks ago, if you remember, it was a sermon on marriage. And I told the story about how sometimes I struggle to, uh, to, uh, to listen. And then sometimes when I do listen, I have a hard time even sometimes remembering that I'm sharing anything back with Tablet, which is a problem, right? But what was, what was so fascinating is that as I confess my struggle to listen and communicate effectively with my, with, in my own marriage, it was like just a symphony of elbows going off all over the church, right? As wives saying, yeah, this is you. This is you. This is exactly what's happening. He says, wives, and he gifts? And all the husbands are like, you listening, right? And all of a sudden he goes, now husbands. And I can imagine all the wives looking at their husband like, all right, this one's for you. You listen now. And then he gets the children. And maybe they're, they're a little distracted because the letter may, maybe have gone for a while. And so they're kind of looking around. And so dad's like, you listening? Listen, listen. And all of a sudden he gets to the fathers. I can see all the kids going, I'm not going to snap at you because you're dad, but are you listening to this? Because this one's for you. And then he gets to... Bond servants? And everyone in the church would have known who was a free man and who was not. Now just imagine the environment, what took place when it got to masters. They're sitting right there. Everybody knows. Can you imagine the elbows and the looks? Now this is really important because the New Testament, in fact, the scriptures are meant to be played out together. That as the body of believers is locking arms together and refining one another and holding each other accountable as we get to move forward, we get to grow, we get to be refined together. And so it comes to the masters and this is what he said to them. He says, for you, the terms are just the same. Did you notice it? He says, masters do the same to them. What's he saying? Treat them with fear, trembling, respect them. Communicate with them with a sincere heart. Don't just work when their eyes are on you. Don't just be a one who seeks to please people or And he says, and don't just don't just do it half-hearted. He goes, render good service with goodwill. Develop good plans that's good for the people. Good ideas. Build good teams. Make good decisions that affect everyone on your team. You know, it's interesting at Providence, I've been here 20 years now at Providence. And what's rare is, is uh, um, it's not special, it's just rare, is that uh, in terms of how we are built and organized, my job description says uh, lead and manage the entire staff, okay? So that would put my job at the top of what you would look at as an org chart. But you know, when I started, I was an intern. And, and, and when I started for two years, I was at the very bottom of that chart. And you know what? It's interesting. Even in the same church, the same organization, I can confess to you that both want the same. The person at the very top and the person at the very bottom, they're not better than anyone else or worse than anyone else. They just have a different responsibility. And every single person along that entire scale, they want to be treated with respect. And they want people to communicate with them sincerely. They want people to work, not just when their eyes are on them, but they want them to work well. And they want everybody to do good work. But then what he does is he adds one command to him, and He goes, but here's the one thing. Stop your threatening. Don't leverage your authority to manipulate and exploit people this has to come from Jesus himself. Matthew 20, 25 and 26, Jesus says, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, but it shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant. You see, this is what he says. He comes in, he goes, for you know that God is their master. He's also your master and he's impartial. He's watching all of us. So application, let's serve those who are under our leadership. See the calling of the Christian employer, if that's what you are, is to serve and bring out the best in those under you while you're trying to make them feel the furthest thing from a servant. And what I love about what he does here is he makes everybody a decision maker. You know, in this context, in the context of marriage in this century, in this time, wives, children, and servants were forbidden to make decisions. They were just supposed to submit. And what Paul does, what the gospel does, he says, even if you're in a hard place, you still get to make a decision unto the Lord is if you're going to serve and if you're going to labor unto the Lord as an act of worship or resentment towards the person who's near you. And then what he does in this culture, husbands and fathers and masters, they had very little accountability. And what does the gospel do? It comes in and it says, everybody has accountability. Everybody will answer to an impartial God who looks at everyone the same. We're all created in his image. Well, there's one more thing. You say, how is this even possible? It's only if we do the third. And the third is this, is that God calls us to admire his son who gave up his position. He gave up his position. You see, until we see the worth of Jesus Christ, we'll always get hung up on the worth of the people who are over us and under us in the workplace. They're not working hard enough. They're not making good decisions, and so I'm gonna do less than my best. And what he's saying here is this is that Jesus is there, and he is honorable, and he is worthy, and he is holy, and he's watching. And so we get to labor as unto the Lord. That's why he keeps saying, as you would Christ, as bondservants of Christ, render service with a good will as to the Lord and not to men. You see, in Jesus Christ, we find the master of all become the bondservant to all. This is what we read earlier. Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 and 7 says, though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with a God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. And that word servant, it's the word bondservant, slave, servant. It's the exact same word that we find here in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 5. Jesus did that for all of us. You see, Jesus worked himself to death so that we could rest in him. And I want you to watch this. This is the most important thing I think that I can tell you today is that after six days of work, what we find is that God created Adam. And God says to him, your job is now to go into the world and do my work with the raw materials that I created. And the first task you have when you wake up in the morning is rest. God Adam's first full day of life was God's seventh day of creation where he rested and commanded us to rest. Why is this important? Because it's the gospel. All of religion says work really hard so that you can rest. And Christianity says rest in the work of Jesus that's been done for you so that you can then labor and joy. There's a vast difference between the two that I hope that you can see. Most of us, we adopt a paradigm that says, I'm going to work for the weekend. I'm going to work so hard so that I can rest. And what the gospel says is this. I am going to weekend so well to prepare me to work. It's a vast difference. And you find it, I think, perfectly illustrated in a movie it's called Chariots of Fire. Now, some of you, this is this is so long ago that you're like, I don't even know what a chariot is. But Chariot of Fire is an amazing, amazing movie that really tells out the gospel. What you see in this picture, there's two men that this movie really seeks to to compare with their life as runners. The man on the right, Harold Abrahams, he's a secular Jew who. His entire movie, he's straining for something. You can even see it sort of in his face that he's, he's still laboring so hard to get what he doesn't have. And Eric Little on the left-hand side of the screen, he's a believer. He's a Christian. And he is running. You can even see it in his face that there's a sense of satisfaction, the pleasure that you find. Each one of them within the movie, they have they have a, a, a dominant line that sort of... Is the thesis of each one of their two different camps. Harold Abraham, this is what he said. He goes, All my life I've been running and running and running, and I still don't know what I'm running for. And Eric Little, his line is, God made me fast, and when I run, I feel his pleasure. See, this is the gospel. This is why when we sing, it is finished, Jesus' very last words on the cross are to be our first words as believers. Every single morning, we wake up and we prepare to go to work. And how do we begin? We admire Jesus who worked on our behalf. We rest because he worked so hard for us. And so, Providence, let's be relentless. Not only to know Christ, but to make him known. If you're here today and you don't know Christ, Maybe you're running and running and running and you don't know what you're running for. You can say yes to Jesus Christ today by trusting in him as your Savior and Lord. And he'll forgive you of all of your sin. All of his work will be imputed. It will be given to you as a gift. He'll take your sin. He'll give you his righteousness. And you can then go about the rest of your life saying, it is finished. I don't have to run to rest. I now rest in Christ and therefore I can run. Some of us, though, we know Christ as Savior, but we still haven't quite seen the link between our work and the worth of God. So even though we trust Him as Savior, we don't see our work as a means to move the gospel forward, either by telling people within that area about Jesus Christ, either by the goodness and excellence of our work, but also just loving people and maybe even having the opportunity to share the gospel in that place. But another way to take the gospel forward is actually to work with the understanding that I get to share what I get so that the gospel can be propelled forward. And isn't this what we learned back in Ephesians chapter four, verse 28, when he says, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. What was he saying there? He was saying, guys, it's a moral thing to stop stealing and to get a job. But it's a Christian thing to stop stealing, get a job so that you can share with other people. And there's so many people at Providence, so many of you right now, because you, you see this, you, you see the worth of Christ and you go and you work hard and then you even give a portion of what you have worked for so that the gospel can be propelled. And I commend you. I'm amazed by you. I'm constantly stunned by your generosity, not only to this body, but even to our city. I just encourage you to excel still more. Keep running, keep running. It is finished. and Because it is, we can labor out of rest. And so I pray this is encouraging to you as you get ready to work tomorrow. So let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for your love for us. We are grateful, so grateful for what Jesus has made available to each of us. And I pray that you would help us to see through all the weeds and all the thorns and all the thistles, even the confusing parts of what we want asked And answered, when it comes to our own work, would you help us to see, first and foremost, just the spectacular demonstration that we see in Jesus, how he worked, how he became a servant, so that we could be free. I pray, Father, that that very lesson, the fact that it is finished, that it would become, that it would be our battle cry every morning as we drive to work or as we drive our kids to school, or as we change diapers, or whatever it is that we put our hands to, would you help us to labor out of our rest, and that we can rest because of what you've done. So God, it's with a grateful heart that we pray to you. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.